Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello again, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Ezra Feinberg, here today with uh, Dr. Brenda Berger uh, to discuss Money Talks in Therapy, Society, and Life, her new collection um, edited by Dr. Berger with Stephanie Newman. Brenda Berger is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst, practices in New York City and Larchmont, She's a clinical assistant professor of medical psychology and psychiatry at Columbia University and on the faculty at the Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research, where she serves as senior associate director for psychology and directs the psychology externship training program. Dr. Berger is an author of the Parent Development Interview and of several articles. She received a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship and the Lionel Ovisi Award of the Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research for Developing a Psychodynamic Teaching Program. Without further ado, interview with Dr. Brenda Berger. Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome once again to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, I'm your host for today, Ezra Feinberg, and I'm here with Dr. Brenda Berger. Um, Brenda is the editor of a new collection called Money Talks in Therapy, Society, and Life. Um, and it's a, a really lovely and interesting uh, collection about money and um, the psychoanalytic process um, and also about money and society through a psychoanalytic lens. Uh, welcome, Dr. Berger. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you and a delight to talk about the book. Okay, let's, um, let's start with, <clears throat> tell, tell us what compelled you to um, put together this collection, Money Talks. Well, it was um, around 2008 when, um, you know, as you well know, it was a pretty compelling time in economic history in our country and the world, when in an interesting way, um, money, which we think of as the last taboo in psychoanalysis, um, began to be talked about much more. I was very struck in my sessions uh, with patients that um, people were, in fact, talking much more about money. I was also struck by the fact that um, I was thinking about money, as were all my friends, my colleagues. We were all at risk. The uh, world was collapsing financially. Um, and... Uh, I, in collaboration with my co-editor, Stephanie Newman, Dr. Newman, um, started talking about um, doing a panel for the American on money um, and thinking about this perhaps as a moment in analytic history when we could think about why has it been so taboo, um, bring it out from behind, under the covers, if you will, and try to make sense there was a double, you know, there was a double purpose, both to understand the taboo, but also perhaps to think about 
the role that the taboo plays um, psychoanalytically, psychodynamically, in the thinking that actually brought about the collapse. So we were beginning to just talk about what is the psychology of money, generally, broadly, but also to try and mobilize the moment when we could learn from our patients and, very importantly, from our colleagues, um, more about what was going on that was actually crashing our world. So that, that that was a stimulus, the time in in history, really. So it sounds like, um, in a way, there was a sort of micro and macro um, motivation to um, trying to make sense of what was happening um, post-2008 um, in the sense that there was this kind of <laughs> this these larger processes at work, many of which are touched on in the book in terms of... Um, um, the sort of roots of the financial crisis in um, mortgage-backed securities and um, uh, on and on, and then and then also the ways in which um, not only the financial crisis affected patients and colleagues, but um, but the meaning that um, its effect had um, in the community and clinically. Yeah, I could not have put it better. Yes. Um, and I think I was particularly interested in, you know, if we psychoanalysts, who are the so-called well-analyzed people in the world, can talk about money, then there must be some pretty compelling reasons. And if we don't seek to understand that, um, how are we going to understand what's going on at the meta level, at the micro and the meta? and the macro level, um, about the enormous number of, um, uh, the enormous load, um, that, um, that is, that is in, in, encompassed by what's in money, the meaning, the multiple, that's what I'm trying to say, the multiple meanings of money in people's psyches. If we as analysts, can't talk about that, then something has happened in us. As, and this was a very important um, uh, directive that we gave to all of our authors of all of the chapters. Please write personally about what you have encountered, both in yourself and your patients, on the multiple topics that we asked them to write about, because we wanted it to be an open dialogue about money. Um, so how could we seek to understand uh, sociocultural norms if, as analysts, we can't even talk about it. So that was a huge goal, but you, you put it very well. Um, when you say when we as analysts can't even talk about it, um, and you mentioned The Last Taboo, which is a um, also a book about money um, and psychology from, I think, the 1980s, um, I mean, when I, I was in training in graduate school before 2008, and there was certainly um, money as a part of um, what people think about as a psychoanalytic frame, um, an element of um, the more concrete um, aspects of clinical work um, that has meaning nonetheless. The fee, um, how much the fee is, when it gets paid, um, how it gets paid, um, and then along with scheduling, time, 
um, these certain um, pieces of reality that um, are both concrete and real and have all sorts of psychic meaning um, for different, you know, different meanings for different patients, obviously. What, um, what do you mean when you say that we couldn't talk about money before 2008? Well, um, I, you know, we have this expression among ourselves that um, patients will, I don't know if you've heard it, but I heard it many, many times before I got involved with this book, but that patients will more readily tell us about their sex lives than they will tell us about what, um, what, they, what they earn. Um, that there's something much more private involved in money. And that has been true for analysts, too. Analysts have typically not been able to talk about their fees um, straightforwardly. Uh, Ted Jacobs makes the point very, very strongly in his very excellent chapter in the book that within training institutions, the candidates, um, along with the supervisors, along with the analysts and the teachers, seem to collude and he gives wonderful clinical examples of the collusion to not ask specifics about what do you charge, what did the patient pay. There's this dirty aspect to actually talking about money in our training situations, and he offers all kinds of reasons for that. Um, I'll just enumerate a few. Um, It's so loaded. uh, As... Um, you well know, candidacy is extremely expensive. Um, it's, there's almost no point in anybody's history, in anybody's development where they can actually afford to do it unless they're independently wealthy. Um, if you do it when you have children, you're worried about money and time taken away from children. If you do it, um, uh, before children, you're worried about delaying having children. If you, uh, you know, the time and cost of the training is enormous. In addition to that, um, pay, uh, candidates are expected to take on low-fee-paying patients, um, give up hours in which they could make more money to do the candidacy. So the candidacy itself is extremely expensive. And often they come out of training, mobilizing all kinds of feelings, expressed or otherwise, known or not known, about money. Um, our goal, of course, in the book was to help people think and talk and know more about how they feel about money. But in candidacy, um, as well as in the society at large, I'll just stay with candidacy for a moment in the training institutions. Um, what Jacobs is saying is that the analysts themselves often have not analyzed their own feelings about money. Um, that then there becomes a collusion between the analysts, the supervisors, the patients, the candidates to not talk about money um, because it's unanalyzed. And the questions about why has it not been analyzed over the years? What about it is so loaded that we, as analysts, haven't done the work is fascinating. I'm happy to talk more about that if you want me to. But um, So within the training institutions, um, the splitting off of the anger about the cost, the denial, the disavowal, the coming out of training. Elizabeth Tillinghast, one of our faculty, said, 
wonderfully at a panel about money. We graduate candidates in a traumatic state of neediness. Um, there's enormous regression on the couch, um, splitting, denial, repression, about um, biting the hand that feeds you. You have to take the candidates at low fees, not be angry, somehow metabolize all of that, pay the analysts. Um, the, the money itself is so multi-loaded, um, personally, individually, as well as within the training institution, that it becomes a minefield. And Jacob's overall point is that if we as analysts don't look at our own counter-transference to money and that which we haven't been able to address within ourselves, we're not going to be able to train people to talk directly with their patients about money. When you said that all these training fees that are sort of endless for the candidate are a minefield, I thought you were going to say they were a mind fuck. <laughs> I mean, I, I think um, there's um, uh, there. It's probably both. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, where the um, origins for the splitting um, or where, where this comes from that the way I mean what you're saying is that um, as psychoanalysts we're trained to deal with um, every possible piece of psychic material that a patient brings that everything might have meaning um, and it's our job to try to understand um, all of this meaning and part of that, of course, is understanding our own experience. We are the ones who are analyzed, and that that uh, being analyzed is part of being a good analyst. And that there's this, there was this aspect um, of the life of the analyst, um, money, that went unanalyzed. Um, and I, I, maybe you can talk about how it came to be that money went unanalyzed that money in psychoanalytic training institutes was a split off and denied, um, perhaps, um, or a split off in some way um, entity. I mean, as I reread the book, the book came out in uh, 2012, as I reread various chapters, I was struck by the various authors um, pulling on multiple multiply determined answers to your question. So, I mean, just let's theoretically for a minute talk about Jones, Ferenzi, and Fenichel. Jones back in 20... Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, not Jones. Um, Abraham. Um, back in 21, <clears throat> you know, talked about um, the origins of anal character development. Um, so, already money being related to anal development was there long ago. Ferenczi in 1914 um, talked about um, adult attachment to money as reaction formation to anal erotism. So already we have money preoccupied with poop, um, smelly, socially, um, stuff you should socially put away and not bring to the fore, if you will. And then Fenichel in 38 talked about... Um, you know, uh, societal norms um, reinforcing 
um, that reaction formation, societal norm of amassing wealth and money as a desirable thing, um, you, you get <clears throat> a, um, an encrusting, really, of uh, a prohibition, if you will. If you're not supposed to talk about poop and you're supposed to have a reaction formation to that and have building and collecting and owning and keeping and holding on to money as a reaction formation, and then the society says that's good and that's a value. And then, of course, that feeds all kinds of other levels of character development, anal, uh, anal oral, um, edible, competition, greed, envy, um, uh, what am I missing? Narcissistic. The self, the value of the self. Look at our culture. I mean, look what happened in 2008. Our culture so valuing money that we will lie and cheat. And Madoff is perhaps our most wonderful example of an enormous, you use the word mindfuck, um, sadomasochistic enactment in which so many people got caught uh, we'll have more and more money. We'll buy into the god of money. Um, what you know? What can we call that? Um, narcissism gone wild. Um, so there's all those levels of theoretical, uh, not the, uh, psychosexual meaning attached to money, starting with anal, uh, forbidden aspect of poop. <laughs> and then oral, the never-ending hunger, greed, longing for the free-flowing breast of money, narcissistic, the self-informed by then societally endorsed value of more and more money, um, oral, anal, phallic, phallic, you know, you got it all. Um, and then I think what we haven't mentioned, and that is important, is that... <sighs> We, as, you know, money, Dimon puts it very nicely in her chapter. Um, let's see if I can quickly find the quote. Um, we, she says that the monthly bill rasps against the poignant longings for love that bloom in the psychoanalytic contract. Um, that she's making the point that it's money, money just threatens to destroy, um, those longings. That there's essentially, um, and, and turn them to shit, if you will, that there's a conflict, um, socioculturally, a contradiction between love and money. And we, in the help, this helping profession, want to believe that we're, and Freud warned us against it, we want to believe that we're dis disinterested philanthropists, we're about healing and helping and loving our patients, but we have to build them. And that there's a contradiction built in there. And to face, and he warned us to not think of ourselves as disinterested philanthropists, but to own that we have to earn a living. Um, but there's something that we find difficult about that. And again, Elizabeth Tillinghouse had, a, I think, one of the most compelling theories I've heard about that. She said that she thinks that we're over-identified with the patient. So in our field, we come to our field by the root of being patients. We go through analytic training, and we're regressed and in you know, needy, and we're pulled into those depths. And that we, in effect, develop an over-identification with the patient so that when we're then analyzing, it's very hard for us to get out of the needy position. How can we charge this patient in need of love? So to own 
That we are in need of them. We don't, it is, money is the one place where we reveal that we are in need of our patients. And they know it and we know it. But we don't want to know it. Um, so that it becomes a collusion to deny in the way we define ourselves as helpers. And again, that was an important goal of, um, understanding all of this. I mean, if you go to a surgeon, I had sh- shoulder surgery around, well, in 20, 20- 13, a year later, I mean, I paid a huge amount of money to a surgeon. It was all handled through secretaries and a billing office. The surgeon didn't charge me, didn't hand me a bill, he didn't take my money. He didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to talk about it, but we have to. And we also don't want to talk about it. And I think that's the point, that there's something sullied and dirty and deeply conflictual for us in our notion of who we are and what we do. In addition, other people make the point that we lack confidence in what we sell. We don't exactly know how to research our field, so we don't know the commodity that we're selling. We're selling knowledge and skill. We're not selling a commodity, so how do you bill for it? So we're ambivalent about charging too much or too little or owning that we do charge. So there are multiple ways in which... It becomes easy to not talk about it. Yeah, I mean, the we're, one thing I think it's safe to say that we're selling is empathy. And um, you mentioned um, the way in which money gets denied through uh, identification with the patient. Um, in that sense, um, there's a way in which, um, you know, you could call that identification with the patient empathy. That empathy, the thing that we're selling, um, serves to mute um, money as um, a, a presence in the treatment in between the, um, the patient and the analyst or the therapist. Yeah, and I have so many clinical examples to suggest that you better watch that one because I'll just give you a couple that come to mind. If you're so empathic, you've got to watch what you're empathic with because there are multiple meanings of money. So um, in training, I had a patient come to me. He wanted a reduced fee um, because his father was very wealthy and he wanted to declare independence from his father and pay for his own treatment. I, being a candidate, needing the patient to be glued to the couch for at least three years, had huge empathy for this very autonomous-sounding goal, so I reduced his fee. Um, During the course of the treatment, I, of course, found out that his father was paying for every other aspect of his life, and I was subsidizing his treatment. So what I had colluded to bury with him was in my empathy for his autonomous, so-called autonomous strivings, I'd colluded to bury the, the sadomasochistic enactment that was happening that ultimately did get analyzed through dreams and other ways in which he knew he was exploiting me. And taking advantage of me. So there's an aggressive aspect to withholding money that somebody has that you can not get in your 
own countertransference to keep the patient, to go with an empathic understanding of some aspect. This one has gotten me several times in my career where somebody's come in wanting a reduced fee with all kinds of very palatable sounding reasons. I'll give you another one. A man who came to see me told me that he really had to negotiate the fee. He needed to be listened to. He presented a father who could hear none of his concerns, a very ill-attuned, misattuned, unattuned father. Um, it was deeply important that he chose a therapist who could hear him, see him, get him, understand him. I wanted to hear that part of him. He needed this reduced fee. I reduced the fee. X number of years later probably about four, I find out he has pretty close to full insurance coverage. I also find out that he um, has a mother that used to tell him, don't let anybody exploit you, <laughs> that women exploit you. Um, they take you for your money. The, money, the mother, P.S., totally exploited the father, took the father for his money, what had gone underground was in my wish to hear empathically one aspect of the patient was the disavowed aggression in the patient, his identification with his mother, um, who was saying, I'm not going to let her exploit me. Meanwhile, he was completely exploiting me. The fee was, I think, something like 80% covered. covered. So I had reduced a fee that was 80% covered, and he was talking about exploitation. So those are some of the ways in which your empathy for, if you're not really hard-nosed about going after the meaning of please reduce my fee, and too empathically attuned to this or that, be, be careful. I mean, be aware that it can be um, just the, or I can't say it any differently, but the multiple meanings of money can be used um, withheld aggressively. It can be given, uh, said masochistically. It can be overpaid. It can be underpaid. So it's just so loaded. Um, when you mentioned um, the, the first example um, of the kid who wanted to um, gain financial independence, um, but his father was bankrolling him, made me think of, um, I believe Otto Kernberg doesn't accept um, fees paid from anyone but the patient out of the patient's pocket. Um, and I know that there are other analysts who follow that as well. Um, I wonder if you had any trepidation with that patient um, accepting money that was coming from elsewhere and not from him. Oh, no, he paid the fee. That was He wanted to pay the fee. Um, his claim was, I need to pay this fee as, so that I can be separate and, separated from my father. But what got, so please reduce it, in effect. So I did. What, got, what emerged later was that the father was bankrolling everything else. So he'd isolated me as the person who was going to understand his drive for autonomy, but it became clear that he could have perhaps taken one fewer vacation to Europe with his father's money and been fair to his analysts. So that, you know, on the business of accepting money from other people, I think that's probably your question. It's complicated. Um, you know, 
there are people who need treatment, who need to get help from their families. Um, I would not turn that away. I think my what I've learned um, the hard way is you should look at it very closely because trust funds emerge five years into treatment. Um, that's happened a few times. I've got no money, I've got no money. Then you find out that people are on trust funds. Um, they have more money than you have. And so I, I think the major point is when you reduce or you set a fee, have a good sense of reality, both your own and theirs, which is very difficult to assess as you're starting a treatment. <clears throat> There's a lot um, in this book about um, the complications of working with people who have money. Um, and um, Bob Glick writes an essay called um, The Rich Are Different, um, in which he um, illuminates all the ways in which money has meaning far beyond money, um, even for people who have so much of it, and there's, and, and he cites examples, um, as do you in your chapter and in other chapters in the, in the book, um, about the ways in which, um, psychological progress is made when, um, people with money lose it. Um, there's not a lot in the book about, um, treatment with people who don't have a lot of money. And, um, and, and, I wonder um, if that was something that you thought of while you were putting it together or if it was even something that you noticed or were thinking about um, or if you have thoughts on it looking back too. Yeah, with hindsight, that's a sad lack. I, I think it would have been good to have a chapter on those who don't have. And I think it's a sad statement actually about, and I, you know, I will take obvious responsibility for that, it's a sad statement about who we treat. We largely don't treat people except in clinic situations um, and training situations. We tend not to treat people who don't have some means to pay us. Uh, we do it when we're training. We do it in clinics. We pay a fortune for our own educations, and then we want to make some money. <laughs> um, but I think your point is well taken. There are dynamic and psychological problems in those who don't have that are as specific to them as there are problems of the rich. Um, and I, I think we should have addressed that somewhere, and we, and we did not. Well, one interesting thing about it is um, that, of course, it's only the wealthy who can pay full fee for multiple day a week um, psychoanalysis, um, you know, at the three to four days a week scale. Um, then it gets a little murkier, I think, when it comes to psychoanalytic psychotherapies at once or twice a week. Um, people have insurance. I know plenty of analysts who accept insurance. Um, I know plenty of analysts and therapists who work on generous sliding scales. Um, and there's, um, um, 
but maybe part of um, the the issue within training institutes is that, um, of course, psychoanalysis at four times a week with a candidate at a training institute is, in many ways, the best deal going for mental health treatment, at least in New York, because you get um, someone who's working really hard, who already has a degree, in many cases has already been in the field working in private practice for years. Um, they've gone back to a training institute. They're um, in need of logging hours with patients who are in four times a week psychoanalysis. Um, and they're willing to take $15 or $20 or $25. Um, and, um, and then there's this great leap um, that I think so many um, graduates um, go through where, or not, not so much a leap, but the wish for a leap. Um, where they, where it's, it, they're spending these candidates are spending all of this time working with patients who are paying them very little and they're putting in a lot of hours to these patients. And, um, and I think that it sort of builds, um, a, a, a probably some kind of resentment, um, around what they deserve. And um, it's interesting because so many people think of um, fees for psychotherapy as exorbitant, and whether they are or they aren't, um, I wonder if part of that reputation doesn't come from the bitterness of the psychoanalytic um, candidate after graduation um, having um, logged in all of these hours for um, very, very little pay. Yes, um, I, I, I think that's important, and I think Stephanie Newman's chapter addresses that. Um, you know, major point being, if you as an analyst are not in touch with working with and hopefully have a supervisor who's helping you with your own resentment, your own anger um, that's building up over the money lost by these low fees, you know, you're at risk for acting out in various ways. I think that's very important, um, as well as perhaps resenting that the institution hasn't given you better and higher fee-paying patients. I totally agree with you that it's the cheapest and best game in town for somebody who doesn't have money to get an excellent treatment. And the book much more addresses some of the um, counter-transference issues that arise, and you point to them, I think, importantly. I think Muriel Dimon makes another very important point, which is that we, we who become psychiatrists and psychologists and analysts are in a what she calls a professional managerial class. She talks about class and culture not being enough in the psychoanalytic theory and dialogue, and I think she's 100% right, that we... We're not going to school to come out to earn lousy salaries. We're going to school. We're, we're part of a class. And um, so part of the way we set our fees when we graduate is about what we expected to get out of this training at the end of the line. You're raising another 
piece, which is an important one, that um, some of the deprivations of the training and the cost of the training, if it's split off, if it's denied, if it's not addressed, can become enactments, which also Owen Hirsch raises in his chapter in the book, which is, um, you know, then there can be all kinds of abuses. There can be overly long psychoanalyses where patients are held on to for 20, 25 years at a stretch. There can be high-fee psychotherapies, which really should be lower-fee psychoanalyses. There are all kinds of potential treatment abuses that can arise from disavowed aggression that has perhaps been buried in the cost of the training, but buried for all kinds of other reasons. And I think that's a major point of the book, is like know your own stuff about money. If you're going to be a clinician and you want to help the world and you want to help people with their own um, complicated feelings about wanting, having, not having, needing, greed, envy, the whole nine yards, know your own, know where you sit at a, at a minimum. <clears throat> um, that's, a, that's a challenging um, thing to know. Um, I think because it it's it never stops moving it's it's slippery it's sticky and you can't it's either it grasps a hold of you and doesn't let go or it slips right out from underneath you um there's sort of no i mean let's be honest there's really no such thing as a, as knowing your stuff about money when um you're when one is so um um kind of when, when it's impossible to exist outside um, the need for it and the, the meaning of it, um, even if you even if you're one of the few who don't need it, um, and you just have it, most of us need it um, to survive. And and so, in a sense, there's no it's it's um, it becomes um, a especially challenging to have the distance psychologically to see it um, and have any understanding or, or language around it. Um, psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic psychotherapy is the this lends the space to understand it, but it's not, but there's a way in which it's, it's up against um, um, too much as far as what um, we can only understand a, a piece of it and the need for the piece of, and, and the need for money and the preoccupation with money um, is sort of fundamentally overwhelming. I agree that it's a huge challenge. Um, and I think particularly in this culture, it is uh, an enormous challenge. Um, and I think this is where Dimon makes very strong points and uh, Bob Glick does. And some of my best learning has been from wealthier patients on this topic because when you see people who have a lot of money preoccupied with it's not enough, and more, and more, and more, and more. And I've had traders and fund, hedge fund people 
basically explain it to me that um, because I'm not in that league at all um, that it's not it's not about the money it becomes very very clear that money is loaded for them in uh, um, some fantasy structure of an identity that will be pain free I've heard terms that I've never heard before like turnkey life. I didn't know what a turnkey life was until I heard from a wealthy patient that it's a life in which you turn a key and it's all there. And it's a beautiful narcissistic construct that if you've, yeah, fantasy, that if you've got enough money, you will just turn the key and life will be stress-free and everything will be, there's no starter apartments, starter homes, struggle process. It's just there. This is powerful fantasy for people, and it's, I mean, look what happened in 2008. It's socioculturally enforced. So I think that's part of what makes it very difficult for all of us to shake free and go, look, what does more money mean to me, and why can't I reduce my fee for this patient? Could I? Do I really need that extra X amount of dollars if this patient is genuinely in need? Could I see this patient for $50 or whatever? She or he can afford to pay. And if not, why not? Um, you know, it is a challenge because once you're out there and you can, in effect, you're credentialed and you can charge what you want, and hopefully you're in a position of getting referrals and don't need to drop your fee, um, you have to look at the meaning of money for yourself and your social responsibility. And, and if we don't, you know, aren't we just like the bankers who, I mean, I'm overstretching it here, but allowed junk to go down that they knew was corrupt and took advantage of people and crashed the world? You know, I'm overstretching the analogy, but I think we have to think about why not drop a fee? And um, do we really need that much more? And it does push you up against what is the meaning of money to you. Do you really need it to survive or... Is it also more of the narcissism and the boat and the house and the? Yeah, I mean that um, is a, another sort of impossible bond because um, when that 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 idea that you that it's never enough um, is is rampant um, at the top um, of the 1%, but it actually is ubiquitous. Um, it's everywhere. And um, um, I don't, um, you know, as I'm listening to you talk about um, wealthy patients, I'm also thinking about the ways in which um, there's a sort of latent aggression to um, 2008, to the way in which um, these people at the top then, and many would argue now too, um, are are not only um, lost in the kind of the endless breast of money and the kind of narcissistic um, everything there, kind of uh, when when and where you want it, um, primitive fantasy. Um, but also a kind of aggressive um, um, negation of 
others, of, of otherness in general, um, that goes, um, I think, uh, uh, that's totally unthought. Yeah, I mean, I think you just answered the first question you asked me much better than I did. I think that anger at that, my anger at that, at the rampant narcissism that brought our world to its heels and the rampant aggression and the carelessness, the complete disregard for the price of some people making more and more was outrageous and needed to be understood and needed to be challenged in some way. Have we done it as a culture? (laughs) Not enough, Um, by a long shot. Um, Should we do it as a culture? I mean, I wish I was more of an anthropologist to address your question of it's ubiquitous. I don't know enough about other cultures. I certainly know, I was recently in Australia visiting family, and somebody, a member of my family, said that she offered both of her children a certain number of dollars that they could have for their weddings. It happened to be 30000 since we're talking about money, I'll talk about money. $30,000 she offered her daughter and her son. They could have it toward a down payment for a wedding, or a down payment for a house, or a fancy wedding. Both of them to their credit, took a down payment on the house. In New York, I don't think that happens. I think more and more the kid takes the wedding and expects that the down payment for the house will happen also. That's the culture we are living in, and Janice Lieberman really makes that point, that we are in a rampant state of greed and envy and uh, destination weddings and destination bachelor parties and we're out of control, and this is post-2008. This is 2015. <clears throat> well, it's a good thing they're not in New York because $30,000 wouldn't get them a down payment or a fancy wedding. Um, uh, but um, Janice Lieberman um, talks about, well, one aside about Janice Lieberman's um, paper in the book is that she talks about how every uh, psychoanalysts are so... Um, preoccupied with talking about the um, the the historical moment of fantasiacal Vienna when discussing early Freud um, and the you know the inception of, of psychoanalysis, and yet no one ever wants to talk about the particular historical mo- moment of 2015. She talks about um, a way in which the superego has fundamentally shifted from um, um, a kind of, from from having shame around <clears throat> um, greed and desire and envy to um, a way in which greed and envy are um, syntonic. Um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about a little bit about that. I happen to really, really like Janice Lieberman's chapter a lot. Um, I think because it did in its own way, and I'm seeing more and more of it. Apparently, there was a book out recently called The Primates of Park Avenue. I haven't read it, but I, I'm hearing about it, about a culture of women on the Upper East Side who are the wives of some of the bankers um, who, I mean, I I see some of these people in my practice. Um you know, the clubs and the vacations and the uh, just an extreme amount of um, entitlement. And 
her idea, Janice's idea, that how do we stay, how do we analyze superego? What's happened to the superego? What's happened to guilt about greed and envy, which she calls on the list of seven deadly sins? It's no longer sin. It's it's validated in our culture. Um, it's good to be greedy. It's good to be skinny, greedy, rich, skinny, greedy, more rich, um, and that these are sought-after values. And I hear patients argue on behalf of that. I hear the wives of the bankers who were in distress and anxious and when the world was falling apart say, how dare he ask me to cut my expenses on my credit card? These are educated women. These are college-educated women with an endless sense of entitlement um, and a feeling that that's their right, their God-given right. Um, so I think she is onto something very important. I heard a 30-year-old patient last week say to me that her new in-laws were taking them on vacation and they, how dare they sit in first class while she and her new 30-year-old husband sit in coach and they made an argument about that, and the parents changed the seating to first. It's hard, Janice's point, and I totally resonate for it, it's hard to keep one's mouth, jaw from dropping when you hear that. Like, I do say things like, when did it become a God-given right that people travel first class, or that your parents buy you an apartment? But I'm very aware that I'm reflecting my the standards of my own upbringing. And Janice's point is we're in a new, we're in a new era. And I think we have to address that. Yeah, I think um, there's really no way to talk about m money and psychoanalysis without talking about um, income inequality. Um, and income inequality is, is um, become a catchphrase, but it's also um, a reality, um, especially in, in New York, but probably everywhere now. Um, we are just about out of time for our 50-minute hour, which we always do um, in New Books and Psychoanalysis. Um, so, Dr. Berger, I want to thank you so much for meeting with us um, and for your wonderful book, uh, Money Talks in Therapy, Society, and Life, edited with Stephanie Newman. Um, and um, I hope you have you on for the next one. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for a great interview. Okay. Bye, everyone. <laughs>